This morning I'll be reading from Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Wealth uh, can crush us. The, the weight of wealth can crush us. In the last six months, um, according to a number of dif different surveys, um, close to $3 trillion dollars has been lost in 401k earnings, has been lost in retirement. For those that are in retirement or are nearing retirement, what do you do? Well, you freak out is what you do first. I'm just kidding. I'm trying to keep you off balance. Well, you guys are uptight. As soon as I said that yesterday morning, Carol was on the floor rolling. We have to understand wealth. This, we struggle with wealth. What do we do with it? How do we properly handle it? How do we view it? And when I speak about wealth, I'm not talking about big bank accounts and second homes and, and kind of um, large boats. I'm really talking about our possessions. I'm talking about our lifestyle. I'm talking about the comforts that we have in life. In other words, it really applies to all of us since we're rich. Now, I know most of us, only 2% of Americans, think they live in the upper class. Uh, the reality of it is, the evidence seems to point the other way. On If uh, median income of $50,000, ours in America is 63, <coughs> but if you just earn $50,000 in a year, you're in the top 1% of earners in the globe. We're a wealthy people. We're a wealthy nation. Let's, let's not be afraid to admit that. The key is how do we handle this wealth is the question. Now, you could call up Warren Buffett, or you could read your periodicals and go to your financial gurus, or we could go to somebody else by the name of Solomon. Solomon was a pretty wealthy, wise guy. In fact, in Kings 10, it says, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Solomon at one point was taking 666 talents of gold per year in, but maybe roughly equivalent to a billion dollars a year. He's a wise guy. He's a wealthy guy. And he's going to give us wisdom on how to handle our wealth. Now, remember now, the Proverbs are a little different. Proverbs are giving us skills for living, right? They're giving us help in the practicals of life. Uh, one author kind of said, the best way to look at Proverbs is really just with common sense, right? They're giving us principles, not precepts. So in other words, one modern-day proverb. The early bird gets the worm. Now, we know what that means, right? It doesn't mean a late bird never gets a worm. It, it, it just means if you start early, you have a higher probability of succeeding at what you're trying to do. That's what these proverbs are. The, these proverbs are trying to help guide us where specific moral law does not apply. It's not like the Old Testament law. They're helping us navigate. How much do I give? How much... 
How much should I save? Should I borrow money? Should I lend money? Uh, these questions that aren't so easily discerned, Proverbs is going to kind of help guide us. So, so the wisdom that we're going to draw out of the entire book of Proverbs, and as I've said to you, if you want the notes or the scriptures, because I'll go through a few of them, because we're picking out in the entire book, just email me and I'll be happy to send them. But, but four things we're going to look at. First, the value of wealth. What is the value of wealth? You think, well, wealth has value, but there's a unique value to wealth that I want you to understand. And then, and then once we look at the value of wealth, we're going to look at the dangers of wealth. Now Solomon's very clear about the dangers that come to us as we walk with wealth. And there's also, thirdly, limits to wealth. There are limits. Wealth cannot do everything. And it's good to know what those things are and what they aren't. And then last, how to use our wealth. Some just practical takeaways for you. So first, this idea of, of the value of wealth. It, Proverbs is very instructional. So if you were to read through all 31 chapters, you, you would see all kinds of direction about the nature of wealth. Uh, Proverbs tries to steer us clear through two errors. One error that we often see in the church, in fact, 70% of Americans think this, is that if you're wealthy, you're blessed of God. That wealth is equivalent to blessing of God. And this is what we would call as prosperity theology, that God blesses with wealth. That's his primary means of blessing. That would be in error as you read through Proverbs. You would also see another error on the other side, which is more of a theology of austerity, which is that money is evil, or the saving and the considering and the dealing with money, that, that to be financially aware and acute is to be ungodly. And, and you ought to focus on and think about the things that really matter, that are eternal. And, and it kind of makes money seem evil. That would be another error, because what we're going to find in Proverbs is that money is, uh, wealth is actually a good thing. It's a blessing from God. It's from God. Two different places in chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. Now, sorrow can come with it <clears throat> by the choices we make, but when he gives a blessing of wealth, he intends no sorrow to go with it. Or in 8.18, God says, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. So we see here that, that wealth is from God. Now remember, let's just take a step back in the Bible. Remember, it all comes from the beginning. In Genesis 1.1, that kind of sets the, sets the narrative. He simply says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is the creator and the owner of all things of all things, this world which produces such wealth. He owns it. He's created it. You think about, and even in Genesis 2, it says that he created gold, and he created precious stones. Even before the fall, this world was created with wealth. And then he creates us in chapter 128, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, rule, subdue, exercise dominion over all creation. We call this the cultural mandate that you in front of me and me in front of you, we are image bearers, all of us, all human beings bear the image of God, and we've been created to take his world and to bring it to flourishing, to bring it to fullness. He created it perfect but not complete. We are, as his vice regents, 
are to image him to the world as we bring this world to fullness, which includes bringing forth its wealth in abundance. Think wealth in Scripture is a good thing. I mean, it provides for help in times of uncertainty. It, it's something that can be passed on to family members. It increases uh, lifestyle. It gives greater opportunities for education, for health. When societies grow in wealth, there are things that are good, that are flourishing out of the earth, that benefit us. So wealth is not seen as a bad thing in Scripture. But here's where the difference is. And this is the difference between modern man and the Christian man, or modern woman and the Christian woman. See, the modern person sees this earth as having no owner. It's just there for the taking. And so you, like going west, you get your plot of ground and you work it. And when you work it and you profit from it, it's yours because you've done the work. It's by the sweat of your brow that you make yourself wealthy. There is no owner here. It's just here, and I don't know that they're concerned about how it or I got here, but it's here, and, and we're going to work it. But what I do is mine. It's mine, because I did the work. It's really between me and my hard work. The Christian, though, thinks differently. We think not as owners, but as stewards. We're managers. We're, we're we're vice regents. We're reporting to one who owns all this. And, and we're called, yes, to, to create wealth, to work hard, which we'll talk about next week, and, and to be industrious and to bring this world to really to flourishing, which will produce wealth. But we're stewards of this wealth. That's why we're called to do it with, with integrity, with fairness. We're to do it with propriety. And we're to do it even concerned for those who do not have as much. Maybe others do not have the gifts that you have or the opportunities or the education. So you're in a unique position to produce more wealth. What do we do with that? Well, if we're stewards, we're looking to God to know what to do with that. And throughout Proverbs, you're going to see a concern for the poor repeated over and over and over. Now, join with me on this thought. Poor people are not always poor because they're lazy or because they're foolish. Some are, no doubt. Some have lost much because of foolishness, these schemes that are in their minds. But many people are poor and struggling because of injustice. People have taken advantage of them. They've been too trusting. They've just lost things. And so, and so this idea that, that wealth has value it has value to us as stewards, that we're called to steward this. The, the wealth we make, we, we take some that we need, but then we're looking to share, to be generous, like God's been generous with us. And this just isn't in the wealth or the cash that we have. It may be in the gifts that you have, the opportunities that you have. So when you look at your own life, do you see yourself as an owner or do you see yourself as a steward? Do you see yourself as a consumer or do you see yourself as a producer. How oftentimes do you move towards others beyond your own needs, trying to meet the needs of others? You know, a way that I often check my heart in terms of how much of an owner am I and how much of a steward is I often think of this question. I think, okay, 
If I got a $10,000 check tomorrow from some distant uncle that I didn't know I had, what would I do with that? What's the first three things I'd do? And if Tom's name is in those first three things, I know that I'm thinking more as an owner than I do as a steward. I, 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 we need to think who else ought to be served because this is a gift from God, these gifts that I have, the wealth. That, so, so who else can be served by that? Uh, so the first thing we see through the book of Proverbs is that wealth has a unique value and you are to be a steward of that value. Now, now saying that wealth has value doesn't mean it doesn't have dangers. It does have dangers. I mean, one of the dangers is just the desire for wealth, right? You may not be wealthy and how you understand yourself, but, but you want to be wealthy. The, the danger with wealth is a longing for it, a, a desire for it, a hunger for it. We see this in chapter 23. He says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Now, he's not saying don't work hard. Yeah, we are called to work hard. But you're not working hard to go up that rung of wealthiness where we're going to find hope or support. This idea of, of longing for it, it opens us to dishonesty, to turning a blind eye, to having soft and squishy ethics, because we so much want to get to this rung on the financial ladder that we're going to be willing to play fast and loose with truth so that we can have it. But I'll tell you, it'll be the ruination of us. And Paul, when he writes to Timothy, and he's instructing Timothy to tell the church in Ephesus, here's what I want you to tell them about wealth. He says these words, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Now, it's the love of money, not money. It's the craving, the desire for money that is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I imagine if you're old enough that you know one or two people who have ruined themselves. Maybe they've ruined their marriage. Just it's, it's you know, my job, my job, my job. It's, it's her success, success, and marriages are ruined. Families can be impacted negatively because you've got to be at the office. You've got to make the next move up the ladder. You can ruin your health by just stress, stress, stress. You can ruin your faith in God. You know, there, is, there have been countless surveys that as people's wealth increase, their interest in God, no, it goes down. So as the wealth goes up, the interest goes down. The trust in God goes down. I mean, th that has been the case forever. So, so desiring wealth and security and, and, and financial strength can be dangerous. But it's not just dangerous because of desire, but the pride that it brings. I, I mean, wealthy people can succumb to a sense of, I'm doing pretty well. We see this in 28.11, a rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. In other words, the poor man who hasn't sought riches, he sought wisdom, he now is the wise one and he's going to be the better. Whereas the rich man sought riches and he got the riches, but the only wisdom he has is in his own eyes. He's saying, yeah, he's thinking how proud he is, how successful he's been, look at what I've accomplished, he, 
he or she congratulates themselves on their ingenuity, their hard work, being at the right place at the right time. They're satisfied in themselves. And yet, they forgot the first principle. You're a steward. Deuteronomy 8, 17, Moses warned the people before they got into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, that means wealth. He said this, he said, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Did you know that verse was in the Bible? He gives you the power. So many of you will work hard, and you will be industrious. But it's still the gift of God. You're stewarding the energy, the opportunities, the wisdom. You may be very bright. You may be brighter than many others in your field. But you're still saying, but he gave that to me. You say, but I worked hard. You did. But you got that power. Everything's on loan. Everything's on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nothing, something, it's God. Uh, so it, this, this helps us to become not arrogant and proud, but generous and humble when we recognize. So it's a danger that it kind of goes to our head. And, and then the other danger is that we can supplant trust in God. In other words, we can exchange our trust in God, who is the giver of life and sustainer of all things, and we're now going to trust in the bankroll that we have. We see this in 1811. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall, in his imagination. So think about that. The wealthy, they think of their wealth and their holdings as like a strong city. So think about you're a pilgrim, you're walking up and you see this massive city with these high walls, you think that thing's impregnable. I mean, that is undefeatable. And that's the way it feels. But he says, only here. Uh, only it's just, that's, that's all it is. It's just right here in our mind. Only in his imagination. So if we're trusting in a, a, a bull market or diverse financial holdings, He's saying, I wouldn't rest in that. It's, it's too easy to supplant. And that's why uh, the scripture that was read in chapter 30, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? This is the temptation that as money and wealth accumulate, that we begin to feel more secure. And he's saying, I wouldn't go there. It, it, it's, it's, a dangerous it's a dangerous switch to make. You know, think about Jesus himself. When uh, Remember the rich young man came to Jesus and, and wanted to know about salvation. And, and Jesus, after some dialogue, says, well, sell everything you have and, and give it to the poor and, and come follow me. It's a big move of faith. It's like the woman with the two mites that gave it at the temple. And he went away sad, it says, because he was a wealthy man. He, he was trusting in that. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, he says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, anytime I've tried to thread a needle, it, it's like one eye closed, you're trying to aim it, and you, you got to do it profile, and then you do it this way. It's hard. Well, try to get a camel through there. Now, Jesus isn't saying, of course, his disciples said, well, it's impossible then. It's true. But then he says, with God, all things are possible. So it's, it's not to make we who are rich feel like we can't be saved. That's not the point. The point is to drive home to us the ease that we have with resting more on our wealth than on the promises of God. That's kind of 
That's the warning. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. That, that's the danger. So, so these dangers are, are clear. You know, the danger is that you can supplant trust in God, the danger of pride, and the danger of craving so much that you give yourself to it. So how do you fall on this? To what degree have you succumbed to the dangers? You know, I think most of us feel that in our culture, it's self-evident that we struggle with greed. We struggle with wanting more. And, you know, Tim Keller makes an interesting point. He says, you know, the sins of lust and anger, they're easy to identify. We kind of see them and can identify them immediately. The sins of greed, it's harder to see. Because what we do is, whatever socioeconomic level we're at, we always look to those who have nicer cars or bigger homes. And we always find ourselves being modest in our lifestyle because we look to those beyond us. And he's saying there's a danger there. There's a danger there. Uh, to what degree do you think more will get you what you want? To what degree do you look for money to solve the problems of life? That's the danger. And, and really, it moves us to the third point, which is simply this, that he doesn't just warnings of the danger, he reminds us of the limits of what wealth can accomplish. Wealth is it gives great convenience and comfort, but it has limits. And let me remind you of a few of those things. Uh, first, it limits. It, it's not, well, I'd say it this way. It's limited in its value to you. Wisdom being better. Wisdom. The pursuit of God's wisdom. This is clear in chapter 8. He says, in 8.10, he says, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. So think about that for a minute. It's kind of like uh, Monty Hall on, you know, let's make a deal. i got two doors. you got a bar of gold right here, or I'm going to tell you something really important for life. Which one would you take? I know what you'd take. I know what I'd be tempted to take. Grab the bar of gold and say, well, I'm willing to listen to anything you have to say. But he says, take my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. All that you may desire can't compare with the wisdom. Do you value wisdom like that? I mean, think about that. Wealth can't give you wisdom. You know, throughout the book of Proverbs, you learn about how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be a friend, how to be a worker, how to speak. You learn about your sexuality. You learn about pride. You learn about humility. You learn about all kinds of things that help guide you through life so that at the end of your pilgrimage, you're happy. Wisdom, money can't do that. You know, just this past week, it was the NBA draft. The NBA draft is where the professional basketball teams uh, draft players, select players out of the college teams uh, to join the pros. And those that are selected early get whopper contracts, just whopper contracts. They get no wisdom with it. They get a ton of wealth right away. They get wealth, but no wisdom with it. I mean, it, it's terrible. They're, they're not better husbands. They're not better speakers. They're not better at any. They just have a pile of cash dumps, but they're not wiser. Wealth never brings wisdom. To what degree do you compare those two? A lot of times we don't even bring them into the same conversation. Wealth is here. I got to get wisdom here. But 
But Solomon's saying, keep them together. What are you pursuing more? Are you pursuing that, that financial strength and security? Or are you, are you pursuing God and wisdom, how to live rightly before the one that you'll stand before? It, it can't give you wisdom. But not only it can't give you wisdom, you can't buy happiness with it. I mean, you're not going to get, it, it, it does make life more comfortable, no doubt, and it makes life often more convenient. But you can't buy happiness with it. You don't get better friends with it. In fact, you're not even sure about your friends. You don't get better friends. You don't, you're not changed. Your family life doesn't get better. In fact, listen to this proverb in 1517. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Think about that for a minute. I mean, you'd rather eat just herbs, rosemary, cumin, thyme, because if there's love there, it's better than a fattened ox. It can't get you happiness. How often we strive for it. We think, if I just get this, then I'll be happy. Uh, that, that reveals, it exposes a materialistic worldview, that you're thinking the ultimate good comes from things. Things will never give you the joy that you will find in God and in your brothers and sisters. Now, let me give you a few quotes of millionaires. They're dead now. They're part of a, a different era, but they were wealthy. You'll know the names. Vanderbilt. The cost, the care of millions is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Now, if you believe that he means what he says, please don't think, well, I'd handle it differently. Rockefeller, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Now, th these are just a, a, a sampling, right, a anecdotal evidence, but, but there are people who have hit the top, and they're saying there's nothing up here. Uh, not in the way of happiness. Not in the way of happiness. To what degree do you find or seek that in this purchase or in this property or in this, then I'll be satisfied? You know, Thomas Watson, this isn't a problem just for our age, by the way. 17th century, Thomas Watson says this. He says, the soul is a spiritual thing. Riches are of an earthly extract. And how can these fill a spiritual substance? How man does thirst after the world, but it falls short of his expectation. It cannot fill the longing of his soul. Folks, even the Beatles got this right. You can't buy me love. You can't do it. You cannot find happiness in money. But the last, another thing is what it cannot do is provide security for you. Think about it for a minute. Wealth will not prevent cancer. It won't prevent heart disease. It won't prevent the fall nature of this world. It won't secure you. It won't secure international oil prices. There is no security in it, ultimate security, because it can't last. In 23.5, he says, when your eyes light upon it, it's gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's how quick it goes. I, I saved this quote from a guy in 2009 after the crash of the market in 2008. Uh, he reported on what happened to him. He says these words, not long ago I learned that 38% of my retirement account has vanished and that my house is suddenly worth less than the mortgage I'm paying for it. I wasn't wasteful or reckless. 
I didn't vandalize my own home. I didn't spend my life saving on riotous living. But all of a sudden, through no particular fault of my own, a major part of my stash of money, small though it was, simply disappeared. Boom, gone. So, so there's no security in it. R remind yourselves of this. A and, and then last, last, it cannot save you. I mean, wealth cannot save It can't forgive you. It can't make you righteous. It can't save you from your sins. It can't reconcile you to God. It can't remove the guilt and the shame that you have for your sins. He says in Proverbs 11, 4, he says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I mean, it cannot save. Think about that. It can't, it can't fix your friendships. You can't do any of those things. So what do we do? Uh, money is not the problem. It's our problem with money. That's the problem. We ask money to do things it cannot do. And then we end up being disappointed, disillusioned, unhappy. In 30, 7 and 9, the passage that was read, he says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. This is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. He says, remove from me falsehood and lying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What he's praying for is contentment. He, he sees the value of it. He sees the stewardship of it. He knows it's got dangers and it has limits. So he just says, he appeals to God. Help me be content with what I have. Let me be content. Whatever your station is, now it doesn't mean you don't strive. It's not calling for an anti-ambition. We're going to see that next week with work. But, but it's learning contentment where you are right now. We need to learn contentment. Contentment doesn't lie at the next rung. It, it doesn't lie in the next step. It doesn't lie in the next promotion. It doesn't lie in the next purchase. Contentment can come to you now. We appeal to God for that. In fact, Paul says it this way. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you know, this Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see it on the foreheads, people wear it in their shirts. It's, it's almost like spinach to Popeye. I can do all things. We apply it anywhere at any time. You haven't prepared for a test? I'm going to walk by faith and say, I can do all things to him who strengthens me. And, and we really misapply it. Paul's saying that the power of Christ is there present to help us walk in contentment. So if you are in a downtime now financially, appeal to God for contentment in this time. Maybe it will lead to repentance over bad purchases or running up credit. Or maybe you're in a time of affluence. Well, then ask God that your contentment doesn't rest in that, but in what Christ has done for you. In other words, God is, we are stewards of all that he, that he has. Our goal in life is not to find meaning and value through the gifts of God, but through the glory of God. So we want to find contentment in God whatever station in life we're at. Whatever station. So we, we, we see here clearly that you have wealth has value because God has given it to us to steward. This wealth that we have has dangers, and it has limits. 
So what do we do? How do we go forward in this? Well, let me give you a few takeaways here. Uh, First, I would ask you to discern your heart regarding how you use your money. Discern your heart. Let your checkbook expose your loves. Just let it expose your loves. And and that's, that's for all of us here. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's in the context of you can't serve God and money. Let it expose you. Richard Halverson was a chenet saplin, or a, uh, the chaplain for the Senate for years. He says, money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. Folks, think it through. If you're married, speak with your spouse about it. If you're not married, ask a friend. Be vulnerable. How do you see me doing with money? You know, the, the, reason I, the reason Sunday is so important to us is because each week you get your soul exposed, held up in the air, and say, okay, where am I doing? This helps your pilgrimage work well. So that way you don't come to the end of your life and think, I should have thought all these thoughts before. No, you're getting reminded. So, so let your finances, your pur- it may lead you to confession over bad purchases. You know, you're pursuing happiness. It may lead you to confession for just running up debt, trying to live on debt rather than what God has given to you. It may lead you to appeal. Remember, repentance is a gift given to men and women who are his children to clean, to kind of clear the decks. Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That indicates he sinned a lot because he's always striving to keep his conscience clear. His conscience is convicting him, and he seeks God for clearing it, and he seeks it with his brothers and sisters. So allow your finances, your checkbook, just let it speak to you about the nature of what your loves are. You may find encouraged that you really have been generous. Well, then rejoice over God's grace in your life. So first, let it expose you. Secondly, give to God as an act of worship. Don't give to God thinking, hey, it's his it's his portion. He gave me, I'm going to give him some back. Kind of a quid pro quo. No, we want to give him, we want to give to him as an act of worship because we're the stewards. We're the managers. We're not the owners. He says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, he says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting over with wine. Now, that ending part there, then your Barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. I think God's encouraging faithfulness in us by reminding us of his ability to provide for us. It's not a, it's not a you give me, I give you back. It, it's not that. He says, honor the Lord with your first fruits. That means when we give to God, we give from the top, not from the bottom. You know, many of us, you know, we kind of have our income, we have our expenses and what's ever left over. Ah, sorry, God, it's a bad month this month. No, 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 we want to take it from the top. And you see the same principle with Jesus Christ when he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So so it may be a small amount. Maybe you're in a position right now where you've overspent, and you're just climbing out of a hole. A lot of people just go right to the tithe, and they stay there. Well, just a quick word on the tithe. The tithe is a 10% 
in the Old Testament, it's a principle of giving. It really wasn't just 10% because they were to give other offerings at other times during the Jewish year and even leave the corners of their property uncut so that the poor could eat there. So really the giving was probably closer to 20, even 22%. In the New Testament, you don't see the same kind of boom. You have Jesus saying, if you have two coats, give one away. That's 50% for those of you who struggle with math. So, so, so the idea is be generous. He will provide for us. See, this is the incredible thing. To the degree that we can give to God, it indicates the degree to which we believe he's given to us. Because if we don't think he really is moving towards us with everything we need, life and godliness, then we are going to be a little bit tight with the wallet, thinking, well, i gotta, you know, I got to pay my bills. But if he's giving you breath, I think he knows what bills you have coming up this month. So, but give us an act of worship to God. And, and then third, I, I would just say, practice generosity. Just practice it. And again, this doesn't mean in dollars and cents. It can be your time, your opportunities. Just practice your generosity. You know, Daniel wrote a letter to, I think, a lot of the seniors. I didn't get one, so I guess that means I'm not a senior, but... Uh, he wrote a letter saying, hey, we got men, and, and uh, I think it was men, but probably men and women in this church that are willing to help out these seniors with home repairs, car repairs. That's being generous. Hey, I can fix a car, I can fix a house, and if you guys need some help, just call me and I'll, I'll come help you. That's being generous. That's practicing generosity. Here's the promise God makes, and God always helps us find obedience Here's what he says in 11, 24, and 25. He says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Do you hear the paradoxical nature of that? He says, One gives freely and gets richer. So giving, richer. Then he says, Another withholds and they suffer want. What's he talking about here? Well, I think he's showing us a principle. It's counterintuitive, no doubt. But the, generous, the more generous you are, the more God cares for you. He takes care of you. Because you're leaning into him, he's going to care for you. You see the same principle with, with farming, don't you? If you hold your grain really tight, I don't want to risk it, you don't get much of a harvest. But you throw it, and you, you get a harvest. So we want to practice generosity. So as you go about this week, it might be something like opening a door and waiting for someone to go. It could be money. It could be time. Let me encourage you. Right, I love this quote from this ancient writer. He writes, Examples are few of men ruined by giving. I can, I can give you a lot of names of men and women who have been ruined by holding, but I can't give you many names of those who have been ruined by their generosity. Okay, thirdly, I would say consider the final day. Just consider the final day when you're going to stand before God and, and be in a you know, the, uh, day of accounting. You know, when we stand before God, what have you done as my steward? So if you buy into the first point of the sermon that you're a steward of God and God's given, so many of you here are so incredibly talented and you're able to do so many things so well. And you've been given these gifts of God. So there's going to be a day we stand before him. I don't want this to be a fearful day for you. I just want it to be a day we prepare for, for those who are Christian. I do want it to be fearful for those who are not Christian. 
I, I do want it to be fair. I, I want you to consider these things deeply. But for those of you who are children of God, there's a day. And we just want to think about that day. Let it guide us. It should be a day that we think about. Matthew Henry said, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. Or, or this, is, this is wisdom that comes from the 17th century. William Googe, he says this. He said this in a sermon given in 1655. He says, seriously and frequently meditate on the account that men are to give of their using their wealth. We are not lords of our riches, but stewards. And a steward must give an account of his stewardship. So I, I'm not looking to give false guilt here. I'm looking to be one who reminds there is a day that we have. And the last thing I would say is consider the generosity of Christ. For me, this is the, this is the coup de grace. This is the big thing here. Consider his generosity. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and he was giving them instructions on wealth, Here's what he said to them. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The only way we can truly give, generously, joyfully, faithfully, is to see how he has given of himself in his entirety for us. He gave of himself to reconcile us to God, to take upon himself our sins. He left glory to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to bear our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, to be God's children, and God would care for us, drawing, him, drawing us to himself. Christ has done this. Do you believe this? Because if you do, and if Christ has given himself, he was rich, became poor, that we might become rich, then we have the freedom to not hold money up to be either a point of idolatry or something that we hold on to. We can be, as it were, casual regarding our wealth and generous. He who is rich became poor. This, for me, fuels gospel giving. If you don't give with this kind of as a backdrop, then it's hard not to slip into that, I, I got to give. God's given me so much. That's guilt. I, I got to give because I, I need some more. That's kind of manipulation. This keeps us free from that kind of awkward, wonky giving that we can get into. This purifies our giving because we look at Christ and we think, he's given all for me. I'm cared for. I'm good. I'm good. I, I, can be, I can practice generosity. So there's a lot I've thrown at you. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's here for us. I'm glad it's a warning for us. It's an encouragement to us. I hope it stimulates for you right giving and joy-filled giving. Again, don't think money with me. Think of life with me. Wealth involves your life. Let's take a moment and just ask God for wisdom and grace that right conviction would come upon us, not false, and that we might move in responses. Let's, be, let's pray that we'd be a hearer and doer, not just a hearer. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.